You're listening to Episode 9 of the Child Life On Call Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Child Life On Call Podcast. When your child is sick, the whole world seems to stop in its tracks. Plans and priorities change, and your number one job becomes figuring out how to get your child well again. For some of us, rest, medications, and relaxation can do the trick. But for others, it takes more. It takes countless doctor appointments, invasive medical testing, therapy, surgeries, the list goes on, and then you still may not have all the answers or results you were hoping for. This podcast features parents of children that have an illness or medical condition and gives them a place to share their own journeys and experiences. We will talk about the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, but one thing seems to remain the same. Children are resilient and teach us more about ourselves and the world than we could ever imagine. Thank you so much for lending a listening ear and opening up your heart to these families and this podcast. I'm your host, Katie Taylor. And we were walking there and you said, can I ask you something? And I said, sure. And you said, am I going to die? And I remember just thinking, really, really, your your brain is scrambling. But by this time, I had dealt with this for two years of how do I say things and what do I say to Jamie? And I remember saying to her, I don't know. I can't honestly give you an answer because I don't know. But what I do know is I will be there with you no matter what. And she said, okay. Hi, listeners. I am so glad that you are here today, and I am so excited for you to hear today's episode for so many reasons. Today's episode will be a bit different than what you're used to because I was able to not only interview the parent of a child with an illness, but I was able to interview the child as well. Well, she's no longer a child. She's an adult now, but you get the point. Today, you'll hear Jamie Gentilly and her mom, Liz, talk about Jamie's heart defect, Tetralogy of Fallot. You may have heard of it as Jimmy Kimmel has recently come forward and shared with the public that his son was born with this condition. Whenever rare diagnoses like these are put in the limelight, it brings awareness, so I'm glad that Jimmy was able to share his son's experience with the world. I'm going to give you a bit of background about Jamie because she is one of the most incredible people that I have ever met. She was my first boss in the child life world and was actually able to merge the role of leader and friend seamlessly. When I went to her for guidance, she offered me true support, all the while showing me adorable pictures of baby animals. She's the kind of boss that gives you the feedback you need to hear in order to grow into a better person and child life specialist. She's also the kind of boss who will invite you over for cookie cake and a viewing party of the Bachelor finale on ABC, all while wearing her princess-style wedding gown. She was then, and is still, the Director of Child Life Services at Anova Children's Hospital in Northern Virginia. But there's more to Jamie's story, and today you'll get to hear it. Jamie's mom will take you through their experience of what can only be described as a nightmare for any parent. Not only was Jamie born with an incredibly serious heart defect that almost went undiagnosed, but she was also infected with HIV during the rise of the AIDS crisis in America. These two women are so well-spoken and so hilarious that honestly, most of our conversation went like this. <laughs> okay, so... And you had to start with an anatomical description, thanks. <laughs> oh. So clearly you're in for a few laughs and smiles today. 
I'm just going to sit back and let Jamie and Liz do most of the talking. Let's get started. Well, Jamie is the youngest of my three girls, and she weighed in at a whopping 10 pounds and a quarter ounce or something. So she seemed like absolutely perfect and no problems. Um, and that lasted for two weeks until her first little checkup. And then they heard a heart murmur, uh, which wasn't necessarily worrisome. They said there's a valve that doesn't always close at birth. Um, so we went back again probably two weeks later, and the doctor said, or maybe a month later, he said, well, still, let's give it another month. And I said, no, let's not. Um, so that's what took us to the first cardiology checkup. Um, and from then on, she was followed by a pediatric cardiologist who didn't seem terribly um, concerned. He thought it was um, something that was not necessarily going to cause problems for her as she grew because there were no real signs of, of anything serious until she hit about nine months old. And at that point, she was crawling and kind of picking up speed. And we were visiting a friend, and she crawled across the floor, went stiff as a board, and totally passed out, eyes rolling back in her head. And it was the scariest thing ever. And I thought she'd had a heart attack and died. And we rushed her to the emergency room. And by the time we got her to see a doctor, she was perfectly fine. In fact, she was fine a minute or so after. And then that was the beginning of about hmm, about five months of sheer nightmare where she would have episodes where she would suddenly go stiff and pass out. And finally, by the time she was 14 months old, this happened and the episodes were more and more serious and longer and scarier if possible. Um, and we got her finally in when they could diagnose that she actually had tetralogy of flow. That was after quite a few missteps of thinking it was maybe neurological. The cardiologist assured us it was not her heart, that it couldn't possibly be because the test didn't show anything by the time we would get her in. And when it was finally diagnosed as tetralogy of flow, that kind of launched Jamie's career of defying all medical science and just thriving when she should have never thrived and, and rewriting the medical books. But that was how we started our journey. Jamie, I know you couldn't add much to that just because you probably don't remember anything up to age 14. I mean, I was, passed, I was passed out for half of that time, so I don't really remember too much. <laughs> it felt like that. It really, but it was really a matter of, of fighting the medical community. And that was, that was kind of where I learned to be very vocal and, and just try to find the right words to explain what was going on because I could never get her in to see specialists fast enough for them to see what was happening and it never showed up afterward on EKGs or echocardiograms or any of those things. So it took being in a hospital on the floor when she suddenly passed out and then it was code blue the whole way. Everybody was, you know, in, in not panic mode, but in, you know, crisis mode. 
And then it was so serious that they didn't let us out of the hospital. She had to have surgery at 14 months old, you know, to, to um, kind of take some remedies. And we had a couple of choices and opted for uh, Blaylock shunt, which is a bypass um, to get her more oxygen into her lungs and kind of buy some time before open heart surgery. So this was not to age you, Jamie, but you know, over 30, (laughs) over 30 years ago. So, you know, I'm just, did they have ultrasound capabilities? Like if she was having these heart issues, you know, I would assume that you could bring her to see the cardiologist. They could run this test and that test and be able to see Tetralogy of Fallot, but I guess that wasn't the case back then. Apparently, the technology was not able to detect to detect it, and because she was so healthy looking and thriving, um, I don't think they even suspected it. it. The only reason at age 14 months that they diagnosed it was I absolutely, I mean, I just finally called the cardiologist or had the family doctor call the cardiologist and say, if you don't get her in, I know she's going to die. This is just reaching the crisis point with how long she turned blue and all of that. And, and so they admitted us to children's hospital, kind of like, well, here's a hysterical mother, and, you know, they, they did teaching rounds and you could tell by the way they were explaining it. Well, this little girl was in because her mother is very concerned. And it was only, I remember them saying to me, you realize that she could die in the middle of a heart cath, kind of trying to discourage me. And I said, I, you need to do the test. And it was only with a heart catheterization that they just were shocked to see that she had tetralogy. They said she shouldn't have been able to sit up, let alone walk because of the obstructions that she had in her heart. But none of that showed up on the tests that were available, kind of running to the cardiologist, even pediatric cardiologists. So um, it was a relief. It sounds kind of strange to say, but it was actually a relief to just have a name to put to it to, because I knew something was really, really wrong. And everyone at one point, they were trying to treat her for epilepsy because another doctor told me that she was having temper tantrums and holding her breath and passing out. And all of those things, I just knew that wasn't true. And so the one thing that I learned through all of that is, you know, you, you trust your instincts and you keep kind of pushing until you get answers, but um, answers weren't forthcoming on those first tests. So it definitely took the, the hard cast to give us some kind of, you know. And then we had two choices. We The surgeon wanted to do open heart surgery at age 14 months, but at the time that had never been successfully completed um, at Children's in Washington, D.C. And he actually was in complete conflict with the rest of the cardiology staff who were recommending uh, a bypass surgery to buy time. And he wanted to do it in one step because he saw in Jamie a great candidate because she was stronger and healthier than most children who are dealing with tetralogies. So he thought this could be done and he wanted to spare her 
a second surgery, but the risks were much, much higher. The, the bypass surgery was reasonably safe. And so I remember at the time, it didn't feel like a great decision. It was like this one, she could very likely die. And in this one, she's most likely not to. So we picked the bypass surgery. Um, can you explain what Tetralogy of Fallot is to people who don't know what it means? It generally means there are four major defects in the heart, and they can vary slightly as to what they are, but for Jamie, it involved holes between certain chambers of her heart <clears throat> and also um, valve function, and all of the, the things combined just cut down on the oxygenated blood that could get into her lungs. And so that's why it didn't show up until she began to move around and, and crawl faster and, you know, kind of become more active. Um, that was where the red flags started flying up. So we did buy time. She grew and thrived with her bypass surgery. And Actually, we postponed her surgery from age two to age three um, just because she was doing so well with the bypass. So when she was three years old, she then had the open heart surgery, which was done to make the repairs on all of the defects that she'd been kind of working around for those years. Now, Jamie will chime in with some insight into some of her earliest medical memories. I definitely remember some of the vivid images from those times. Even as young, I, I've, I'm certain I remember some of that visit from when I was even 14 months old and those following months afterwards. I just have these very vivid images of what the halls looked like and smelled like and they had orange carpeting and this Oscar the Grouch thing in the playroom that I remember like it was yesterday. And on one of the tests, I, it may have been the Blaylock shunt procedure uh, or something shortly after that, but I remember being wheeled back into a procedure room and I was on the stretcher. My mom and dad were behind me and everyone was walking very fast. And I was just looking up at the at the repetitive white fluorescent lights as they passed by, as they wheeled me down the hallway. And there was the point where mom and dad had to say goodbye and they had to take me into the room. And once we hit that point and passed those double doors, I was a wreck. And I remember just wishing that they could have come back with me because I wasn't asleep yet. I, w I hadn't gotten any anesthesia. I w was just being rolled into this very large, sterile, it really looked like a silver room. It was just so sterile. And uh, I had a little stuffed cat with me that my neighbor had given me. And that was my only comfort item. And I, I clung to that. And when we got into, and when they settled the stretcher into their position, I remember saying, can I have a pillow? So I must've been old enough to ask for something. But um, asking for a pillow, and they said that I couldn't have a pillow, but I could lay on my cat. And they took the cat out of my hands and stuck the cat under my neck. And I was like, no, I won't hurt the cat. Like, don't make the cat go through pain, too. So <laughs> that made me even more upset because I was like, not the cat. And then, and then I remember them um, putting some sort of oxygen tent type thing over me. 
And I looked up, there was a hose right above me. It literally looked like I was just under a big square plastic tent. And there was a, the hose was directly over my face. And I just thought, what the heck are they going to spray me with? And I had no idea what that was for. And it was just terrifying. And then obviously that must, that must have been when they gave me the anesthesia because I don't remember anything after that. But um, then I, I remember waking up from a procedure. It was probably the same one. And I was in the recovery room with lots of different people. And I remember looking to my right side and seeing my mom and dad sitting right there. And that was just instant comfort to, to see that they were there. Uh, but that I could, I, I feel like I can still smell that hallway. I remember like it was yesterday. And that was definitely when you were three. That was, that was the second surgery. Cause I remember. Yeah, that must've been. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. So Liz, if you want to take us um, to that second surgery when she was three, can you talk to us about, um, cause I guess they postponed it because she was doing so well. The pipe, the bypass was successful. Um, take us from there. Well, part of that, that as I listen to Jamie describing it, breaks my heart because I know why she's remembering all that so vividly. In her first surgery, when she was 14 months old, they gave her some medication before we left the room. And it caused her to panic. She didn't know where she was. She didn't understand. And she was very upset. And she couldn't figure out where we were and everything. So when they came to do her open heart surgery when she was three, I asked them not to give her something that would make her lose control so that she would be able to kind of know where she was and understand because she was always very bright and understood and wanted to know what was going on. So we walked down the hall with her to the doors of the operating room. And at that point, of course, we had to, to part ways. And, you know, they wheeled Jamie in and I walked over into a corner and totally lost it just because, you know, I was letting her go through those doors. But when I afterwards kind of found out, and it wasn't until many years later that, that I knew about her being in a, just in, crying and being upset and no one being there to comfort her inside the operating room, I will forever feel like, oh, God, I should have let her have the shots going down the hall. But at the time, it no. seemed like that was a better thing to do for her because she, it, the other one had not worked. It just had not done what it, what it should have done for her. So... After her recovery, which, again, she rewrote the medical book, she was supposed to be in intensive care for like a week to 10 days, maybe. And she was sitting up by the second day and just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And probably by the end of the second day, beginning of the third day, they started talking about sending her back to... Um, the cardiology ward, just because intensive care is quite aptly named. It's very intensive. It's such an open room. There are crises going on all over the place. And she was aware enough of that, that it was not a great place for a little one to be if she's just kind of, even though she was wired in every direction with tubes and, and 
IVs and all that kind of stuff, she was still kind of totally aware of everything going on. So once she was strong enough to leave there, that was our goal was to get her out of intensive care. But that was in record time because once again, she didn't do what the medical book said. So um, then there was an interesting story. Should I tell it or do you want to tell it, Jamie? <laughs> About how Which he one? left intensive care. Oh, you, you should tell it. Because this is a good oh. mama bear story. <laughs> <laughs> so we were promised like for a day and a half that, you know, yes, as soon as there's a room available, um, she's going to be released. And I would be with her all the time in intensive care, except when they did grand rounds. And they understandably make everyone leave when you do grand rounds. There can't be any parents there. The grand rounds can take a very long time. And so it was probably going on the morning of the fifth day or the, the end of the third, I forget which, but fourth or fifth day, they announced that I was going to have to leave her because they were going to do grand rounds. And I said, well, you know, what about the room? And, well, they say it's not ready yet. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not leaving her, not one more time. And they said, well, you have to because we're going to do grand rounds. Grand rounds. And I said, no, I'm sorry, watch me. And I literally picked her up and with all of the wires and was kind of carefully putting her in the store and I was rolling her out the door with or without help and as they <laughs> quickly got the nurse to kind of get the line straightened out and we left intensive care right then and there they sent a, a nurse with me because you know obviously they were going to just have me walk out with her but we then sat in the playroom up on the cardiology ward, and you'd be amazed at how fast they got that room ready. I bet. They never had anyone actually walk off with their child, but I did. <laughs> so I was not leaving her one more time because it was too long and too intense, and it wasn't right. So. That was the bomb. It's there. so funny. To, it's, it's funny to hear you tell that story because the thought of not having parents involved in rounds now and like being in the medical field is just unfathomable. Like the, to kick parents out for that and to think that they did that back then and the the, the difference is amazing. So I'm I'm glad yeah. that you that that you broke down I'm the door with me and all my wires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's true. <laughs> but and you know they tried to prepare us before we <clears throat> opened heart surgery for just how it would be. But honestly, nothing prepares you for seeing your child kind of wired for stereo in all directions, you know, with lines and and tubes and everything else. And I remember walking in um, just as she was kind of coming to in, in intensive care. Um, which was actually, Jamie, the first time that we got to see you. It wasn't in recovery, but it was in intensive care. And just putting my head down on the bed to just kind of calm myself to absorb all of the technology that was going around. But Oh, and the other thing that she did was she was so active in those two days in there that on 
the day before I kidnapped her out of there, he set off every alarm <laughs> because suddenly everything was flatlining and it was because she had pulled the pacemaker out of her heart by turning over. <laughs> <laughs> they decided she was doing so well that they wouldn't even try to put it back. They just pulled the rest of the way out. But that was, <laughs> you know, it was just... It was like, oh, excitement in all directions. But <laughs> anyway, I'm done with so it. then we sat back up in the cardiology ward. <laughs> wow, that's an incredible story. So, Jamie, do you remember any of that, any of the hospitalization part or going to the playroom or anything like that? I do. I remember, well, I'm not sure if it was when I was in ICU or in the cardiac unit after I after my mom kidnapped me, but I remember, um, mom, you came up and you had this tiny little stife teddy bear as a, um, a little present for me. And it was, it was like tiny enough to fit in your hand and you had it cupped in your hand cause you wanted to surprise me with it and like crept up <laughs> to the bed. I had just woken up from something and you opened up your hands to reveal this adorable little teddy bear. And I just, puked all over it and you <laughs> and it was, I felt so bad for throwing up on you but I also felt so bad for throwing up on my new present <laughs> and I was like I ruined it <laughs> and actually and then, he, he, he survived <laughs> <laughs> you washed that thing off very well <laughs> but I do yep. remember that I, I remember being traumatized by throwing up all over that cute little bear and you sorry about that <laughs> no first of many it was okay <laughs> so jamie do you remember knowing how much information you wanted or i guess you know during that actual hospitalization did you like to talk about it did you not like to talk about it and you know afterwards the recovery part how much of your life was affected by that medical stuff i think that i knew I always knew that I kind of lived in a medical world, but I didn't know that that was anything different than what kids were supposed to live in because that's the, that was just my world. Um, I definitely was the kind of kid who needed to know what was happening before it was happening. Um, it, it could not surprise me with anything because I would freak out. Um, and some of the, the I, I needed a lot of that preparation and, but apart from that, I I can't recall it being really out of the ordinary because for me, it was my ordinary. Um, and the great thing about it going in and out of those experiences and lots of follow-up doctor's appointments is that I had my mom there with me and she always made it a good experience. She knew how to get ready for it. She knew what to explain to me. She knew that she needed to explain everything to me. Um, she knew that she needed to advocate for me and tell the staff that they needed to explain everything to me. And when, and she never lied to me. That was, that was the important thing. When things were going to hurt, she said, she was honest with me and told me that it was going to hurt, but it's going to be quick. And then we're going to go do something after. And we always did something fun after, even if it was just going to the gift shop in the hospital or going to do something special or having my favorite meal for dinner she always made something special, did something special after those tough times. Um, 
but I remember, I remember people being really sweet and kind and amazingly, I have mostly positive memories from those experiences. One of the worst I remember, mom, you probably remember this like it was yesterday, was getting the um, stereo strips removed from my incision on my chest. That the that tape that after the stitches came out that they put on there was just the strongest. Like you could build an airplane out of it and fly it to Mars. It's that strong, <laughs> and at least I felt like it was. And that they where they went to take it off, and you wouldn't think that removing tape would be a hugely anxiety provoking thing for a kid, but I I was really sensitive skin apparently, or I was just a wimp. And the first one that came off, it was only about an inch long. And I just remember being in hysterics and, and it was like the most painful thing to me. And then it came off and I was like, Oh, thank God it's done. And then, but I still had like 20 more to go. (laughs) Um, But that was the beginning of my first um, experience of my very favorite feeling in the world, which is relief. And that came to me from all of those visits because it was, there was oftentimes something uncomfortable and, it wasn't always fun, but there was an end to it. And then you can heave a big sigh of relief. And that's my mom and I always talk about that. It's our favorite emotion is relief. And even if it's just going to the bathroom, when you really have to go to the bathroom, it feels good. <laughs> it's just relieving. <laughs> like appreciate, appreciate relief people. It's a good thing. <laughs> oh, that is so true. I've never thought about it that way, but you're very right. <laughs> So Jamie has a successful surgery, and Liz and she both feel that incredible feeling of relief. One nightmare ends, and another begins. Liz talks to us about what happened after Jamie's surgery when she received a notification from Children's Hospital that Jamie may have been infected with HIV during her surgery. We were doing the touchdown dance, basically, because it was a very successful surgery. Um, It was a really brilliant repair of the tetralogy that... They were able to save her valve and not give her an artificial valve, which meant that she didn't have to have surgeries every so many years to replace a valve that she'd outgrown. So it was just wonderful. You know, we thought it was that all of the the visits and everything were down to a minimum. They were they were kind of in the past, except for an occasional checkup. And then we got a notification from Children's Hospital that she was in a risk group um, for HIV because she had had so many blood transfusions and she'd been on a um, a heart-lung machine doing open-heart surgery, which involves a lot of blood, um, and that she was in a risk group. And I remember getting a phone call I don't know if it was from a cardiologist or someone from the hospital, but I remember asking the questions of, you know, well, what should we do? Because it was not saying that she had HIV, but that she was in a risk group. And I said, well, for your own peace of mind, you could bring her in and have her tested. And I remember thinking at the time, I would never put her through one more stick just for my peace of mind because she was fine. She, you know, she thrived. She was healthy. She was happy. And 
So her, she and her, my, my husband and I, her dad and I talked about it and decided, no, that was not necessary because there were absolutely no medications for children at the time. So why would we kind of put her through something when there was nothing to be done? So that was when she was probably about five that we were notified of that. And we made the decision not to have her tested. So life went on. She went back to roller skating and she had loved to do from the time she was three. And she was a healthy, happy little girl um, right up until the next bombshell hit. So, um, when she was eight, um, we had moved to a new area up in Pennsylvania from outside DC and she just got sick. She got one infection after another and it's always in the back of your mind. She was in a risk group. Oh my gosh. And I just thought, you know, this, Oh, is this some kind of sign? Maybe, maybe we should have her tested. So I remember talking to her cardiologist about it on one of the checkups and he said, well, let's just run the test just to, you know, just to eliminate this. So we know because she had gotten strep like four times in a row. Seems like every time she got over it, she got it again. And so we took her and had the test run. Um, it was probably a week or two after that I got a phone call and it was from her cardiologist, which was unusual. Usually the someone from the cardiology staff called, but it, it was her doctor and he began to talk and he kept talking and talking and talking. And I think my brain got there about a half beat before he finally said, that Jamie had been infected with the AIDS virus from her open heart surgery, um, which just didn't seem possible. Even though we were doing the test, it was like, no, this can't, can't be happening. And I remember being home by myself at the time. I mean, you just can't even breathe by then. You just, when he finally kind of got the words out and, and I think he was just trying to find a way to say it. But I understand that now that sort of thing is not generally done over the phone. But this was at the very beginning of, of the crisis. And I don't think anybody really knew how to kind of work through those things. So that was the information delivered. And it was just like your whole world stops right there. And there's some poem by WHO about stop all the clocks and it's very apropos because you just feel like the world needs to just stop right there. You can't, you can't breathe. You're not sure you can process the information, but there it is. So that was kind of the beginning of the next round of what do we do and how do we get through very different from the first one, which involves surgeries and, and lots of options. Um, this one had very few options, and and that was the beginning of the second journey. So I remember just hanging up and thinking, oh, how I couldn't even tell anyone because you were feared for how they would treat your child, and 
So that was a difficult beginning. And I think the hardest part for me was trying to figure out how to get Jamie through it and how to find the right words and how to just give her the tools to get through the next step. So that was that was a kind of a a learning curve for everybody, the whole family. Jamie, what do you remember from that time? I guess you were eight or nine, so I mean you had an excellent memory since birth, but <laughs> you know, at that point, what do you remember? Do you remember your mom being different when she had gotten the phone call or what were the next steps? Uh, I I don't remember if there was a a moment that I don't remember the day that my mom got the phone call because I don't remember a time where she kind of changed or became different or looked at me differently. So she did a really good job of putting on a brave face. Um, and when they were figuring out how to tell me, they they it, it kind of, even though I'm extremely smart, it kind of took a couple times to get it through to me <laughs> what was really happening. <laughs> so they took they brought me in for a visit with one of my favorite nurses from the hospital to have this discussion with me and tell me about, um, tell me about the HIV. And up until that point, my, I was in, I would had always feared having another surgery. I was really afraid of having another heart surgery because I, my, that was my thing. I had, I had a heart condition. I didn't want to have another heart surgery. So when we went into the hospital just to have a discussion I was convinced that they were going to tell me that I needed another surgery and I was petrified. And so we got into the room when we sat down and we were with my, um, one of my favorite nurses, Dottie, and they sat me down and my mom and Dottie started to tell me about a bug in my blood. And when I heard that, ironically, I felt that feeling of relief again, (laughs) because I, I thought, um, I saw, I didn't, I asked them today, do I have to have another surgery? And they said, uh, no, you don't. And I said, well, that's great then. I don't really care if there's a bug in my blood. Um, but literally it was very much that as long as it wasn't heart surgery, I didn't care. And I also didn't understand what HIV was. I don't, I don't think, I'm not sure if they use the term. I know they didn't use the term AIDS during that first conversation, but uh, if they used the term HIV, it went right over my head. All I heard was, no, you don't have to have another heart surgery. Yeah. No, so that no. was, I was, I was completely, I was fine after that because <laughs> I was oblivious. And I think that from then on, I was, I think mom, you and dad, and, and uh, I think you told Heather and Kelly, my sisters, after that, um, and you kind of kept an eye on me to see if I picked up on things in the news or on commercials about AIDS, and you could tell that I was just oblivious and I, it was not connecting us. And then when you're like, okay, it just did not get through to her. We actually have to have another conversation with her. Um, so went in for another visit to the hospital to talk to my favorite nurse, and we sat down. And I don't remember the the exact verbiage, but I remember hearing HIV and it's the virus that causes AIDS. And that's when I got it. That's when I realized that this was something. Um, I remember being really sad and thinking, I, I just remember being sad about it and not really knowing what was next, which I think was really 
that this me, the person who needs to know what's happening next. We didn't know what we were going to do next. I think that was really, um, that was difficult for me. And then I remember thinking, okay, you can tell my sisters now. <laughs> and mom was like, oh, honey, they've, they've known. <laughs> so I felt like I was the last to know because I, I just didn't get it. So, cause you told Heather and Kelly, well, you told Heather, pretty pretty much right away right and then Kelly shortly after that yeah the first when you were eight yes but there was actually a two-year gap between that first sitting down and the second sitting down (laughs) yeah I was oblivious for a solid two years yeah (laughs) well and the truth was um, the nurse that that Jamie's referring to was the assistant um, kind of the the nurse in Nobody knew where to put these AIDS kids when they started kind of showing up through testing. At Children's, they were just ill-prepared for this. So they they sent us to the allergy doctor there, as ironic as this sounds, um, when she was eight. And we said we had to take her back in um, for tests. You know, we just told Jamie we have to go back to children's and do some tests and everything. And we went for the first time knowing that she had been infected. And that was when we met the nurse, Dottie, whom Jamie's referring to. And she was the the real lifesaver in the situation because the doctor didn't really want to deal with children um, who had HIV. He had signed up for being, you know, the doctor of allergies and here, they were sending all of these children through here, and he was probably the most ill-suited man on the planet to deal with it because I remember asking him, just you know, as you can imagine, kind of trying to wrap your head around it, trying to to just get a handle on how to to what were the next steps, what do you do, and it was after he had seen Jamie, and then she went out actually with Dottie, the nurse, to sit outside while we talked to the doctor. And I remember asking him, you know, well, what, how, how long does she have? What is, you know, are there medicines? Well, no, there are no medicines. And he's sitting behind his desk, literally with his hands behind his head, kind of rocked back in his chair. Now, just read the body language in that one. And I said, well, how long does she have to live? And he said, probably about two years. And that was sitting with his arms behind his head. (laughs) I just remember kind of, it was so blasé that it literally took my breath away. And there were no support groups at that point. There were no, there was no network to kind of talk or find out what was available. And it was Donnie who kind of reached out. A a social worker came in and promised that she would call me in the next day or so, and she never called. And I know that because I never left the house for two weeks. It took me, it took all of everything to just not kind of melt down in front of Jamie. And she did not understand what was going on. And we were not at the moment able to explain it to her. So we were taking her back for like one test after another. 
that's the part that it really scared her because as we're going back to the same hospital where she'd had her surgeries, she's thinking, oh gosh, something is wrong with my heart. So at the point where we had to um, explain it to her, that was after a series of tests where she was becoming more and more anxious. And it was Dottie who helped us to sit her down. And Dottie explained to me that she would, she would hear as much as she wanted to hear. And she would ask questions and we were taking our cue from that as we sat there and explained that there was a virus or a bug that could make her sick and that that's why we had to monitor everything so carefully. And once she understood there was not a surgery involved, she was fine. And she, she sort of visually shut down. She just was like, Oh, okay, fine. And so Donnie said to me after Jamie had left the room, she will probably in the next few weeks start asking more and more questions and, you know, just answer them as honestly and as straightforward as you can. And, and guess what? Jamie never asked questions. And that was where for two years I was waiting for Jamie to ask me more questions about the bug. <laughs> she just didn't. And so we went through until all the time monitoring her her T-cell counts and checking because when we first found out she was still in a normal range of immunity and there were really no medicines approved for children at that point. So there was nothing that could be done. So we were just monitoring, but Dottie told us about a program at NIH that was all on protocol and experimental drugs that they were working on drugs for kids. And so she suggested that we put Jamie's name on a waiting list because there was a wait to get in and you had to have a very low T-cell count to qualify for these, these protocols. And it took about two years for Jamie's immune system to begin to fail. And it did. And it began to show up in all of the routine blood work that we would have her tested periodically on. And at age 10, it was clear that she was going in the wrong direction. She, I think you had to have a, a cell count of under 200 to qualify for protocol, where normal was 800 to 1,200 or more. And when she hit that, she was at the top of the list already. So that was when we had to have a more serious conversation with Jamie about what exactly she had. Because up until then, she still had not asked the question. And life was good and all was well. So at age 10, we turned to Dottie again, uh, partly because in order to take her to NIH, there were posters all over the walls about AIDS and HIV. And there was no way that I was going to get Jamie in and out of those corridors without her suddenly going, hey, you know, wait a minute, what am I doing here? So I wanted to tell her exactly what she had at that point. Her dad did not. 
he was very protective of her. And I remember him saying to me, why, why on earth would we ruin her life when, you know, we don't know how long she has, why on earth could we scare her and ruin her life? And I remember, I mean, it was a very, very big headbutting because I said, I will not lie to her. I simply won't lie to her. And I won't have her realize that I wasn't telling her the truth when she puts two and two together. That's just, I can't do it. If I have to be there when she's going to die, I am not going to have her not trust me. And so I pushed hard to tell her. And in the end, we did tell her. And it was Dottie who helped convince her dad that that was the only way to get through this with her and to help her with it was to give her all the information and to be honest with her because we couldn't get her in a drug program for AIDS when she didn't understand what she had, in my opinion. So that was how we ended up with that second meeting where Jamie, probably you remember, Jamie, how that meeting ended. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, that, we, this is kind of, it, it's kind of finish? has been, you can, <laughs> yeah, I'll finish that. I like to start. <laughs> this this has been a it's kind of been the the good characterization of how we've dealt with things is that we had this really difficult conversation and cried and hugged and it was probably one of the hardest things for you to do mom is tell me that and in no uncertain terms and but once once we we're done with that conversation and we walked out of the room with Dottie and there was someone else there. I, I forget their name, but it was somebody who was another, um, not a great friend from the hospital. And we just decided to go skipping down the hallway, like wizard of Oz style arm in arm. And you, you, we probably looked like lunatics skipping down the hallway, but, and you would never have guessed the conversation that we just had, but it was, it was like, okay, this, it was, yeah, it was like, okay, well, let's, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it in style. So let's go skipping down the hallway. <laughs> well, and, and I remember Jamie just, she, she understood the minute we said the word AIDS and she just cried and sat on my lap and we figured she was 10. So there was a lot of, legs hanging over at that point but she just sort of nestled into me and she just bawled and and then when she finally kind of got it all out and she didn't really ask any questions and she looked up and she said can we go to the zoo now (laughs) that was what we had said we were going to do and I knew that that was as much as she wanted to deal with at that point she was she had absorbed all that she could absorb and I am her dad and I said yeah we'll go and so that was when we walked out into the hall and she linked arms with Dottie and I and she the three of us went down doing the Wizard of Oz dance we're off to see the wizard and we went all the way down the hall doing that now the rest of that story and I don't know if you remember this Jamie but we went to the zoo And we were walking along with your dad and with Heather and you sort of pulled me back and hung back from them. And we were walking there and you said, 
can I ask you something? And I said, sure. And you said, am I going to die? And I remember just thinking, really, really, your your brain is scrambling. But by this time, I had dealt with this for two years of how do I say things and what do I say to Jamie? And I remember saying to her, I don't know. I can't honestly give you an answer because I don't know. But what I do know is I will be there with you no matter what. And she said, okay. And that was kind of all she said about it at that point. And we continued our journey through the zoo. That was, I think, probably... No, no, you go ahead. I was going to say, I can't, I can't imagine what you were, what you felt like having me ask you that question, but I can't imagine you having a better response because you were honest with me and that you also, you conveyed to me that I wouldn't be going through anything alone. And that, I think that's probably why I didn't ask a lot of follow-up questions because I completely trusted you and I didn't feel like I had to do my own investigating because I, I knew you had this. I knew that you had my back and that you would take care of me and that whatever happened, you'd be there. And that's probably why we were able to just skip down the hall and go to the zoo and get on with life and <laughs> not have it paralyze us or me at least. Well, and for me, it was, I had had two years kind of to, to, try to get a handle on this while you didn't understand completely what was going on. And I mean, it, it really helps you prioritize and to figure out I mean, what was the most important thing in my heart at that point from just hearing the diagnosis was how do I get Jamie through this? Whether it is a sad ending or, you know, at that point there weren't really prognosis for happy ending. So it was more just a, What's important and and how do I convey what's important to Jamie? And if I can back up to the the first notification at age eight, I couldn't figure out how to get a handle on it. I mean, it was everything I could do to just sort of be mom when she would come home from school and and not, you know, be teary-eyed or whatever. Um but I finally did get a handle on it, and I found that with two thoughts, and I think it's important for any mom who's going through something like this. I realized that there was a worst-case scenario, and I, I at first I thought there wasn't. You know, oh, if your child had cancer, you could tell someone. You could reach out. You could find a support group. But it was AIDS, and nobody did that, and there were no support groups. And and I remember thinking, there's just nothing worse in the whole world. And then I thought, yes, there is. If someone kidnapped my child and I didn't know where they were and I couldn't protect her, that would be horrible. That would be worse. I had her. I could protect her to the best of my ability. But that made it better than the worst case scenario. And the second worst case scenario I figured out was, any mom whose child ran out in front of a car would give her right arm to have two years, to be told that you have two years with your child. That would be like a gift for her. So that taught me 
how to prioritize and what to kind of try to give to Jamie to get her through when she needed to understand that. And it was about quality versus quantity and it was about what's important in life and and that was where I had that all kind of somewhat sorted out in my head by the time Jamie asked me, am I going to die? So it wasn't an out of the blue question because I kind of been waiting for it for two years. <laughs> and that was the the part where it began a second journey for for me as to how do I kind of give her the tools to get through and what do I say that can help her and what do I do that makes a difference? Um, we began to reprioritize um, vacations. You know, we took some whopping good vacations from the t- time we found out when Jamie was eight. There was suddenly no reason to save lots of money for later. I wanted to show her as much as the world as there was to see because what we had was the then and now. It was that day and don't waste it because something terrible might happen. And so at age eight for you, I chose to have hope. And when we hit the point of telling you at age 10, that was the the thing I wanted to convey was hope, choose hope, because why would you choose the alternative? So that was what kind of guided everything from that point on. And that's what we kind of worked to communicate going into the time with protocols at NIH. And I just thought that we had won the lottery because I didn't know what was going on when I was eight. And we just went off on all these amazing vacations. I was like, who just adopted us? Because this is fantastic. And I'm getting all the presents and vacations. (laughs) I had no idea. But it sure was wonderful. (laughs) You know, it was like round two of lots of tests and constant. You know, I think Jamie felt like she had put behind her all of the, you know, the checkups for cardiology and all of that. And then, you know, at age 10, when she entered um, the protocol at NIH, we were back to, you know, that was just a part of our lives. And and it was just something that I don't remember you feeling like it was terrible. I didn't feel like it was terrible once we got past the horrible lumbar puncture. That was the baseline part of your testing. Um, The rest of it, you know, was just kind of just what had to be done. And Jamie got brave about yeah. getting stuck. And, and we just kind of knew what to expect. And, I, and I, I've always known with Jamie, she just needs to know what to expect. You know, she's, um, if I can share one quick thing, just in general, for when we were coming up to her second surgery, you know, I was worried about telling her her surgery was scheduled for January. And, I didn't want to spoil Christmas for this child. <laughs> you know, it seemed like, oh, by the way, you're going to have to have our open heart surgery in January. And um, I was given the really excellent advice of give her as much notification as is humanly possible and as many months out as possible. And 
the times that I've talked to other moms, it's been one of my my best kind of experiences of as, as terrible as it seems, give children a chance to process because first of all, they do a better job than we do of it, but they just need time and they need to be able to kind of digest it and ask the questions that they want to ask. And maybe that's a lot or maybe it's not, but don't spring anything on them. It's that's kind of the worst way to do it. And, and so everything that we did at NIH was kind of done that way, but we just Mm -hmm. kind of entered the next phase of doing tests and all of that. But from your perspective, Jamie, I know you kind of liked to go to NIH in general, except for the, the blood draw part. But. Yeah, I I really liked it. Everyone was really nice there. I, the the um, it was a day off from school. I got one on one mom time, and we just went and did our tests. And there were some days that were really tough. That there involved a lot more testing and um, pokes than than an average day at NIH. But um, but we got through those, and I really remember at that point, it almost felt, I almost felt cool about it because my life sort of went into two different modes and I, I, I wanted to keep this a secret. I was afraid to tell people I wasn't ready to tell people. And so whenever I had these days off of school and sometimes it would be multiple days in a row and I would come back and people would ask me why I was gone. I would say, Oh, it's because I have a heart condition. So it wasn't technically a lie, but I certainly wasn't telling them the whole story. And it sort of just became like this secret thing that my mom and I did. And we would have a day at it and we would get sausage McMuffins from McDonald's on the way down. And we would usually stop by the mall on the way back. So we made a day of it and I made great friends there. Um, And then I came back to school and kind of switched back into non-HIV mode. And I I remember just being aware of it and knowing that we had to follow a very strict protocol of the medications and, and appointments and staying on top of it. But that, I liked that order. And, and I, I, that was kind of, I had always lived in a medical world. So that side of it wasn't entirely new to me. And it was all, I was kind of where I was, where I was comfortable almost. Um, and I just got really good at telling white lies and not telling my friends why I wasn't in school. And the thing, the times when it popped up when it was really tough was when I couldn't do things like going to sixth grade camp because my medication protocol was too complicated to leave in the hands of anyone but my mom, basically. And so I missed out on that week. And that was sort of a rite of passage that was difficult for me to miss out on. Um, but apart from that, there really were, it, it was kind of cool. I liked going there. I liked, I liked just kind of doing our thing and having it be our thing. And I would like to, to just add that from the beginning, when Jamie understood when she was 10, um, it was her decision as to whether or not this was a private piece of information or do we stand on a mountaintop and shout it. And her dad and I both felt very strongly that it was up to Jamie. If she wanted to talk about it, 
she wanted it to be open and, and no secret, that was fine. If she didn't want to, that was her decision because this was, this was what she was dealing with. And it was her decision. So I had let the schools know that she was HIV positive, but only at a very high level, not teacher level, not nurse level, but literally like the head of the Department of Education level. But I did it because they needed to put protocols in place. And I remember saying, you don't know if there's another person who's HIV positive in your system. This, you need to be using gloves if you're going to you know, be handling blood products or something. And there's no risk otherwise. So just kind of know this. And they were very respectful of, of Jamie's privacy the whole time. So that was why... You know, she she was more comfortable not talking about that at school or with her friends until her senior year. <laughs> that was fine too, but yeah. it turned and out. And I remember, that I never felt. You never felt. I, I remember. I I never felt that it was that it was nothing that I was ever ashamed of. It was just something that I consciously was just not ready to share with people. And right. I never felt like it was something that I had to feel guilty about or be ashamed of or that some that you guys made me keep it a secret. It definitely wasn't that at all. It was just a, no, this is just my thing right now and I'm not ready to talk about it. And then when I got into high school and then I realized, you know, friendships were forming and we were almost going to be adults and going off to college and I realized that I just wanted to be more open with my friends. So then I decided to be more, um, more open about it in, in college and, or in high school and talked to one of my best friends and had the discussion with her. And it was like the first time that I had ever done that at the age of what, 17 or 18. <laughs> and it was nerve wracking, but it went really well. And it was a really nice experience to have just talking about HIV, not at the doctor's office or not just with family at the table. Um, and certainly by then, the stigma around it had evolved into something that was not nearly as dangerous as it was in the early years. I mean, it truly was. Mm, that's true. I, I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel safe being open with it um, just because of how it was viewed. Definitely, as people became more educated about it, it was not as frightening for the world at large. But mm-hmm. um, Yeah. So, yeah, that that sort of was probably very wise just to kind of pick your time when you did. Liz talks about how one of the best things for Jamie at the age where she was still keeping her HIV a secret and living a bit of a double life was when a counselor suggested that Jamie attend the Hole in the Wall Gang camp in Connecticut. According to the camp's website, they are a great camp dedicated to providing a different kind of healing to seriously ill children and their families completely free of charge. They're a community that celebrates the spirit of childhood, the sound of laughter, and the feeling of endless possibility. Jamie was probably the most reluctant camper on the planet <laughs> when I remember <laughs> saying, just try it, just try it. And, you know, if you don't like it this once, you'll never have to go back, but just go and try. And it was probably one of the best things that she ever did in terms of just spreading her wings and soaring because every kid there had some kind of medical challenge and, and she felt like she was sort of among 
friends in all directions and she formed fabulous friendships and she did amazing things and you know she just had all this wonderful stuff that happened and she still would come home and not really talk to her friends about it and it was I always was so amazed that she didn't really kind of have those two lives overlap but she didn't um I'm I'm a really good liar (laughs) (laughs) so basically I don't know what you've told me that's the truth and what's not you'll never know so good (laughs) I learned it from watching you Uh, it was like just turning it off it was just compartmentalization to the to the extreme (laughs) camp is it's hard to put into words it really became that was a turning point in my life where I discovered this whole other world of people and this whole environment where and I I was very lucky growing up I my family was very supportive and I had great access to care I was a lucky kid and then I got to camp and it was just beyond what I could have expected. It was having other kids there who had some sort of medical condition, but it didn't really matter. We were there to have fun. We were there to be kids. The counselors made it the most magical experience you could ever imagine. I I can't even put it into words. I came back from that first summer at camp, a completely different kid and had a level of I, I felt more confident. I remember on the first night we had, um, or maybe it was the first or second night, but we had cabin shots. And so everyone would get into bed and snuggle in and the counselors would um, light a candle in the cabin and we would talk about something. And it was like the get to know you night. And I, I just, the, the, the 12 hours of being at camp completely changed me and I was ready to talk about it. And I was ready to talk about HIV. And I was like, I have a question. Can we go all around the room and can everyone tell me what they have? <laughs> and, the, and the counselor was like, well, how about we talk about your favorite flavor of ice cream? <laughs> but I was like, let's do this. This is amazing. <laughs> Like, I'll tell you all the secrets. This is awesome. And it was just nonstop. It was it was living life without limits. And I felt safe doing it because they had a full infirmary there with doctors and nurses. And it was just perfection. And that place has been my second home since then. And I will, I will always have a part of my heart up in Connecticut at Hole in the Wall because that has just, it's grown me. You know, it's the only place can compete with the lessons that my mom and my dad and my sister taught me is camp. It's just, it's, it's, yeah, I can't even get the words out. It's indescribable. (laughs) It's magic. Yeah, Yeah, it really is. So Liz, what has it been like watching Jamie grow up before your eyes into this amazing, incredible, well-spoken, successful person? Well, the word blessed comes to mind right off the top. <laughs> it's just, you know, you have to kind of realize to go from believing that you're only going to have your child for two years. And that was about the, the normal, oh, from infection to compromised and you're gone. Um, each challenge that Jamie met was like a celebration because 
you know, when, when Jamie began to date and have dilemmas about how much do you share when and how I remember being like kind of, Oh gosh, that's really rough for Jamie. And then thinking what a wonderful problem to have because we didn't think she was going to have that problem. You know, it just, she just grew and, and faced all the challenges. I remember her one time saying to me when she was picking majors in college, she said, well, I, I don't think I want to do pre-med. And I said, why not? And she said, well, you know, cause you know, I might go through all that and never kind of last long enough to be a doctor. And I just remember saying, cool Lord, you can't, you can't, live your life like that. Don't close the door. You don't know what will be going on. And, you know, just keep all your options open. That's, that's what you have. And, and she has done such an amazing job of doing that, that it just brings me joy that everything about kind of watching her grow and seeing her become this remarkable woman. But I think probably the, the turning point for me where I thought, yes, yes, she's got it, is I remember saying to you, Jamie, and I don't remember, and it was, we were both adults, and I said, I, I have few regrets in my life, things that I would ask for a do-over on. I said, maybe the one that I could think of was before your open-heart surgery, if I could just have known then what I know now, I would have donated blood because I have O negative as a universal donor. I could have banked blood for you so that you were not infected in, in your open heart surgery. And she said to me, mom, don't wish that my life is amazing. And so many things have happened to me because of everything that, you know, no, it's fine. Don't ever think that because I've had a remarkable life. And I thought to myself, thank you, God, because she does understand the, you know, the half full versus the half empty. She's got it. She knows it. And it's, it was wonderful to, to just see that that's how she has always lived her life and then chose a field where she gives back to kids and she's looking out for kids and she's, She's loved by her staff, and she's obviously a very remarkable woman, and I don't think I'm the only person to think that, although I might be a little biased personally. <laughs> well, I remember you telling me that, and I, I just, there, there's, I don't have, I don't look back in my life and think, oh, this is terrible. I mean, I've lived such a great life. I feel so lucky, and it wouldn't have been this way had had it not had the the course of decisions and actions that have brought me here and that I I feel so lucky to be living this life and yeah I, I think that I got that from you and going through the through every little trial and tribulation with the well we're not sure what the answer is but we'll figure it out and we're going to do it with uh, the glass half full and not half empty and see what we come up with. And yeah, that's, and it was kind of unstoppable from there. And then, and then I took organic chemistry in college and that's why I decided to not be pre-med anymore. So, <laughs> <laughs> so 
<laughs> HIV couldn't hold me back, but OCHEM definitely could. <laughs> so. And I but was given relieved me... at the time. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, goodness, how is she ever lasting those horrible years where they make you work for like 52 hours straight? How would she do that? But I never said that. Yeah, no. I thought, yeah, that's what you want. You'll find a way. <laughs> I was glad when you didn't. <laughs> oh, well, that was a really good. It was. I knew I wanted something medical, but and then at first I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician, and I knew I wanted something with kids, and then I found out about child life, and it was the perfect thing for me because I basically got to do. I get to do for kids what so many people have done for me in growing up that have made my story a happy one and not a sad one in helping kids understand why they're going through specific medical experiences and helping to get them through that and helping families. And that's been a blessing for me because I get to kind of pay it forward and I've lived what has worked for me and it kind of it's it's an honor to work with these families to see what they're going through and um I certainly don't compare anyone's experience to mine because it's my experience is not anyone else's and I'm not I don't put that on anyone else um but it's given me a lot of insight into working with kids and uh, working with families going through these medical experiences whether they're small or big because really it's all relative it's a very simple procedure can be so anxiety provoking for some families and everyone just deals with it differently so it's taught me a lot about how to support other people and it's been a good field for me well liz i think you kind of got to touch on what you would tell um another mother who is kind of in the thick of things maybe going through a similar experience but is there anything else you'd like to add I think I think I would want to stress advocate for your child that don't hand over to quote medical experts without really having them hear your voice because you know your child best and all the tests in the world can't replace that that parents have and it's it needs to be heard and some doctors are really good at listening and some doctors are not so good at listening but you have to always kind of keep saying it until it's heard um and that it's just too important to to say well they they said this so my gut tells me otherwise but you know because i think that's that's what moms and dads have is that that connection and and you are their first line of defense so whether it's researching what can be done and having choices or communicating with your child or anything it's just you need to to find your voice and if you need help to get that voice there are now you know some pretty good kind of support groups and things to to find that can give you guidance as you find your way, but but to be your child's voice when they can't be that for themselves. So. And Jamie, what would you tell another child or teen or somebody who is going through something 
like what you went through? Um, that's a tough one because kids and teens who go through something are just so at the mercy of their, of whoever's sitting on their bench, their family, their doctors, their community. For me, I, I just, it's hard to tell someone to just go be lucky because <laughs> I, I honestly feel like that's what has gotten me so far is that I really lucked out and I'm so grateful to have such an amazing family and support system. Ask, I mean, I think probably I would say ask questions and tell people what you need, I think is, is, um, is also really important is when you're going through, especially when you're going through adolescence and if, it, if you're a child and you're growing up with some kind of condition and now you're becoming an adult, that's a lot to figure out and build your support team, advocate for yourself, just like parents should advocate for their kids. Uh, make sure that you are on top of things and that you are kind of in control of what's going on and you're not leaving it into the hands of every of everyone else around you because you definitely have to be your own advocate when you get older. Um, but certainly reach out for help and support when when you are in those tough situations, ask the questions. Um, but I, I certainly wouldn't have known that when I was a baby or when I was three or eight or 10 or along those years, I was just lucky to have people along the way helping me through it. So I don't really know how to articulate that. <laughs> no, you, you did a really good job. You did a really good job. I mean, I think a big thing is you listen to your mom. You know what I mean? It's I think it's probably so easy to be so stressed by things that are going on and almost have some resentment or whatever that would be. But like your, your relationship with her has made you stronger. Oh, it completely has. I, I, this wouldn't be happening if my mom hadn't spoken up when I was younger. I, she saved my life. Literally. She saved my life. And I'm just, that to me has been an, unending support system from the day I was born to now when I'm 38 years old and can look forward to a long life with my husband. And to say that sentence and think back to when I was 10 years old, asking my mom if I was going to die. And now my husband and I are talking about what we want to do when we retire. I mean, that's insane. It's so crazy. And I feel so lucky and so blessed to be in this position and um, really listening and and trusting and letting letting people take care of me um certainly that that's been huge i would say it is choose hope because i think that's what jamie did really early on and for parents especially it is it sometimes it, it takes almost an effort to do that but for jamie and i saw children on the cardiology ward and everything where medical science sometimes leapfrogs over you. And so what seems really, really difficult today, there could be a solution to down the road. Um, for Jamie, it was a case of there was one medicine and that was AZT that was just barely approved for kids. You know, now there's just an arsenal of drugs that can help and and maintain everything 
And I think if you waste your current day by assuming the worst, it's, it is just that it's a waste because if you choose hope and then you just keep kind of put one foot in front of the other, you figure it out together and, and then you haven't kind of wasted the day worrying about something that may not happen after all. So mm-hmm. I think put yeah. a little faith in medical science and, um, and just cross your fingers and look at the half full glass. So, Mom, you articulated things so well, a lot better than I did. You tell the stories a lot better than I do. It's, it's no way. It's always, <laughs> I've heard, no, I've heard, I've heard them obviously. And, and you and I have talked for years about it and, but it's always such a treat to hear you talk about it. And it makes me feel even more lucky. So I love you. Love you to the moon and back, Kidlet. <laughs> and I feel so lucky to have been able to share Jamie and Liz's experience with you. Their story is worth sharing, so please send this episode to someone you love and let them listen to the lessons Jamie and Liz have shared with us today. One of my favorites from them is to find joy in life's good times and in life's challenges. The fact that we are getting to live them and experience them is reason enough to celebrate. I have excellent news for you, and that is if you wish you knew more about Jamie's experience about growing up with HIV, she has written a book. It is called Surviving HIV, Growing Up a Secret, and Being Positive, and you can buy this book on Amazon. I will put a link on the show notes page. Trust me, you have to read this book. You will laugh, and you will cry, and you'll feel like Jamie is your best friend. Please follow along with Child Life on Call wherever you like to check your social media, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And if you have any questions, you can always write to me at info at childlifepodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening to Jamie and Liz's story. Go have a glass half full kind of day.